0: I'm here in the studio drinking Makko Lee. I picked up a 750 milliliter plastic bottle of it today at the H Mart on 32nd Street in New York's Koreatown. The cashier rang it up as beer, which it is definitely not. It is a milky rice wine drink, tangy with lactic acid, creamy but absolutely on the path to becoming vinegar. It's a farmer's drink, almost as old as Korea itself, but it nearly went extinct before a new generation of hipsters and nationalists and regular people who just appreciate a low-alcohol booze with complexity turned away from Western liquors and brought makyo back to the Korean cupboard. The conversation I'm going to have in this episode is about chasing a taste memory in the opposite direction, from Korea to the United States. Nicole Choi is a D.C. school teacher and author who wrote a beautiful essay on this for Roads and Kingdoms about Korean cornbread. You see, her mother grew up in post-war South Korea when U.S. forces used the locals as a captive market for non-perishables. They brought American powdered milk by the fleet. They made cornbread with that milk. They fed it to schoolchildren. It was not, in any classic sense, good cornbread. But Nicole's mother, like many Koreans her age, couldn't help but form an attachment. And many years later, after a bruising round of chemotherapy in Maryland, it was that old post-war cornbread that she craved. Nicole, her skeptical, loving daughter, set out to recreate it for her. I'm Nathan Thornburg, and this is The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world.
1: My mom, she has stomach cancer in 2013, and then she got breast cancer in 2015. She had just finished chemotherapy treatment, and she had all these cravings for different kinds of food. So then when she started talking to us about this cornbread, my brother actually suggested, you know, we Google it just to see what comes up. And to my surprise, a lot of things came up.
0: What did your mom say about this cornbread? What was that conversation?
1: She was just describing the texture and how it was like really rough and hard. But she wasn't saying it in a bad way. It was as she was as if she was craving it. That's yeah.
0: funny. So you you and your brother are sitting there and be like, OK, so there's this cornbread. It's rough. It like you could break a tooth on it. Uh, and, like, here's your mom saying, yes, that's exactly what I liked about it.
1: Right, and she wanted to taste it, and she hasn't tasted it since she emigrated to the U.S.
0: 44 years ago. Yeah,
1: and we were actually in Korea last summer. It was a bakery, and the advertisement outside said in 1966, cornbread. Um, and so we actually bought a piece, but we were skeptical, and we were right. My mom said it didn't taste the same.
0: Oh, man. So even yeah. in Korea, they're chasing this this flavor, this, like, this texture, and mm-hmm. they can't get it. So she missed the flavor. You guys were like, okay, we can Google for that. Mm-hmm. What did you see?
1: I saw Kyunghee Park's dissertation at the University of Leiden, and it was an entire chapter on Korean cornbread and how it was distributed to schoolchildren. Um, I was describing it to my mom, and you know, my mom was just shaking her head, agreeing, especially when she heard the nickname Stonebread. So, yeah, I found that amazing that other people were talking about it. Um, Solism, another food blogger, his website came up um, and it said he had experimented with this recipe, trying to come up with the right recipe several times. So everyone seemed to be on this search for the cornbread.
0: You have this entire diaspora mobilized to try to recreate this cornbread. Mm-hmm. What do you know about the kind of history of that dish?
1: After uh, the Korean War... Um, South Korea was obviously very poor and struggling. And so the U.S. wanted to donate some food um, to Korea. And what they did was they were donating powdered milk and cornmeal to school children to distribute at um, certain schools. It was the schools that were very poor, um, that were very remote, and they would give these free lunches to those children. Sometimes the powdered milk, they wouldn't cook it properly and it ended up giving kids diarrhea. Um, so a lot of people just threw it out and it had a bad reputation. Um, and then cornmeal was donated in 1961. Um, they initially made that into gruel, but it took a lot of labor. It was prepared in schools and so it just became too costly to produce it. And then... I guess the idea of making it into bread came up. And so eventually when bread was being mass-produced, and according to Killing Park's dissertation, it says bread was first mass-produced in Busan. Then cornmeal was being used, and as well as the powdered milk that was being donated, they were both being used to make this cornbread. And that was being distributed to the schools.
0: So there's this very, like, specific window of time when a school child in, in certain parts of Korea would right. have, this would have been, like, a major part of their diet.
1: right. But then my mom, when she left Dongduchan, uh, which is where she was born and where she received that uh, cornbread, when she moved to a different city closer to Seoul, she said she didn't receive it anymore. So I think it really was restricted to the, you know, to the school children who were in these remote areas.
0: I mean, that's interesting too because it's, of course, a donation, but mm-hmm. um, it's also kind of a cynical. <laughs> project right that we, right. we had we've done this we did this in Japan after the war certainly in Korea we're looking for markets mm-hmm. not necessarily friends right how does your mom feel about the fact that that was part of her diet
1: um I think she just was grateful so I don't think she has any feelings or resentment if anything it was just a new food to open up her open her palate to
0: Yeah. And what about you when you like obviously spending time thinking about this, reading about it? uh, Is is it is it different from generation to generation? The ideas of like what that what that relationship actually looks like?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I think and I think this is where maybe like my personal experiences come in. I guess I don't like the idea of it, or I'm not comfortable entirely with the idea that the U.S., under terms of being friendly, they just wanted to make, um, they wanted to, I guess, like groom school children to become consumers of American food. Um, Just the idea that Koreans are seen as very passive, um, submissive, and like people can walk all over them. So... Yeah, I'm not entirely comfortable with it. However, I was doing a little bit more research, and I saw that between 1961 and 1963, because PL-4480, that was like the Food for Peace initiative, um, where the agricultural surplus in the U.S. was being donated to foreign countries. So that was signed in 1954 by Eisenhower. And under Eisenhower... um, it was He was just strictly trying to get rid of the agricultural surplus. But then when Kennedy became president, he wanted to, I guess, change the rhetoric of that. And so instead of calling it agricultural surplus, he started calling it you know abundance and using the agricultural abundance to alleviate hunger and starvation and to combat uh, malnutrition. So when I read that, I felt a little bad for sharply criticizing the effort in the article. Um, that
0: means Kennedy's marketing got to you?
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it seems well, it the genuine. The man was a charmer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh,
0: so you found these food bloggers. You got a couple recipe ideas from them about how to actually put this together yourself?
1: Yes. We didn't try Mangchi's recipe, actually. Mangchi's a... The f- Korean food, food blogger. blogger. Yeah. yeah,
0: up here in Queens, right?
1: <laughs> mm-hmm because my mom took one look at it and said, that doesn't look right. So we didn't try that one. A, a
0: woman of judgment. Huh? Re-
1: yes, very harsh judgment. <laughs> um, but then we saw Soulism's recipe, and she saw that it looked very hard. And she was like, oh, okay, that might be the right one. But she said the shape was off. Uh, but my brother tried that recipe, and there were some ingredients for the original cornbread. Um, I didn't do it correctly. And so what I ended up with, it looked kind of like polenta, uh, after I cooked it, but it was you couldn't eat it, so we threw that out. But Soulism, um, his recipe, my mom enjoyed. She just said it wasn't quite right.
0: How reliable do you think her like sense memory is of of that?
1: I don't know. I mean, she's admitted that too. She said, you know, like when you describe the cornbread, it does not sound appetizing. So she actually is questioning. Like, maybe oh, I was just very hungry. And I just appreciate the fact that they gave me two pieces of cornbread. And it was new. So that probably made it more appealing as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, is her response to Solism's recipe like not breaking my teeth enough, not stone bread <laughs> enough?
1: She just, she is munching on it. She just goes, no, it's not quite right.
0: So tell me, you you cooked the cornbread. What goes into it? Like, What are the, what are the ingredients?
1: So Solism's recipe, he used butter, sugar, salt, egg, um, some cake flour, baking powder, milk, and then cornmeal.
0: Now that sounds kind of delicious. It's hard to see the the you know the toughness in that. Right. Uh, one of the differences that you know of between like how it would have been made before and and Solism's recipe is uh, is the powdered milk, right?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: So you would have used powdered milk, which you did not cook with.
1: Yes, we just used regular milk.
0: You got something against powdered milk?
1: <laughs> it causes diarrhea. <laughs> <laughs>
0: this podcast, sponsored by the Powdered Milk Association of <laughs> the United States, it causes diarrhea, and, uh, but on the other hand, can make a very nostalgically um, uh, tough And hard uh, (laughs) piece of cornbread for your mom.
1: Yeah, possibly. I'll have Uh, to try that
0: out. Yeah. All right. Well, there's there's a goal for all you folks at home. We're going to post a recipe uh, on uh, on the show notes, and then we're going to have you guys make Korean cornbread with powdered milk. I want to see some adventurers out there. Just stay close to the bathroom. I guess that's all we're saying. (laughs) It's not too much to ask. I mean, because you can buy cornbread in Korean bakeries like Shilla, Mm -hmm. uh, they have here in Queens, they've got them down in Maryland, Mm -hmm. um, and they have a cornbread, but that's not the same either.
1: No, but you can actually tell, I think there is a difference when you buy cornbread from those Korean bakeries versus, you know, the cornbread you get at an American restaurant. The one in the Korean bakeries, they're never cake-like. They're so hard. In my opinion, um compared to the American style, it's not it's not soft, it's not very sweet, and it is a little it's crumbly. It's not spongy.
0: And do you think that's kind of stretching back toward that kind of that harsher cornbread?
1: Yeah, so I actually tried getting um, someone from Sheila Bakery to talk to me over the phone when I was writing this article, but nobody wanted to, and I can't speak Korean, so they were just saying, oh, no, 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 I can't help you, and they hung up. So then my mom called, um, and she was speaking Korean, and she was talking to, I think, one of the store managers um, at the one in Elk City. Um She said, like, that cornbread is designed for the Korean taste, or it's meant to appeal to Koreans specifically. So it is going to be a little cornier, um, (laughs) grittier. Okay,
0: (laughs) grittier, yeah. But that sense of grit, like, Koreans go for more intense, like...
1: Corn flavor. Yeah, flavor
0: across the board. Like, you know, the Mm. intensity of flavor seems Mm -hmm. to be a requirement and that love of sugar is just not not the same as our glucose overloading mm-hmm. non Korean Americans. <laughs> um so how has this become a part of the rotation then, or was this a one time kind of special making the cornbread for your mom?
1: It was just a one time thing.
0: Yeah. You're like, that's it, mom. You got one chance, one walk down memory lane. Right. <laughs> now yeah. we're moving on again. Yeah.
1: Um, and then also in Korea, when she was still there, there was wheat flour that was donated. And that was able to produce like much softer bread. My mom says she still liked that really hard corn bread, But now at the bakeries, they sell this really fluffy milk bread and she loves that stuff. Uh-huh. So I find that kind of funny.
0: Yeah, because white bread was that, you know, was the other kind of thing that had been Mm -hmm. brought over along with cornbread. And, of course, Korean bakeries now, you know, again, it's like in so many different parts of the culture, Korean anything is just like the quality is very high. Mm -hmm. Like the FOMO factor for people like is very high if they're not getting uh, getting their Korean baked goods. They're super good Mm -hmm. and like universally recognized as such. Is that weird for you to see, you know, Korean food having the moment that it's having?
1: Yeah, um, especially seeing the jars of kimchi at Giant and Safeway. And it's a small jar. It looks like 16 ounces and it's marked up to five ninety nine. I find that strange. Yeah, and then some, when I meet new people, I know they're well-intentioned. You know, they'll bring up like eating Korean barbecue, I'm like, we should go out to eat Korean barbecue. They go, Oh, okay, we can just eat regular food too.
0: You're being typecast as right. someone that they would like to bring to their barbecue spot, right? Right, uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, going through this process, and I don't know, having a family of your own someday, like, what how do you feel about the foods and the things that you might hand down to them? Have you ever? put thought into that how that culture stays alive
1: definitely um I want to learn how to make kimchi from my mom and like all the different soups um because I still eat Korean food on the daily and so even though I am my own place I will go back to my mom's house maybe like once every other week and I just pick up food from her um and I eat that for dinner but I definitely want to pass that down Um, And then my godmother and I were actually talking about this and we were saying how like a requirement for a boyfriend is that he eats Korean food and that he loves Korean food. Yes, that is very, very important because I cannot imagine a life where I'm not eating Korean food. Right. Or having to be self-conscious about it. Right. Who doesn't understand Mm -hmm. why kimchi is a a miracle cabbage. Right. (laughs) Who <laughs> gives a you know a stinky face when they see it, even though they're okay with me eating it? I want someone who really likes korean food
0: um did did your mom's illness like kind of accelerate that for you, feeling like oh crap, like you know life isn't forever, I gotta download as much as I can
1: yeah, um, and then just also asking her more stories, I guess about our family. It definitely did put them like a sense of urgency that I need to get these things now. I mean, they don't write things down. Like, they don't write recipes. My mom and her sisters, even when they're cooking, you really have to just watch them because they can't tell you, oh, just a teaspoon of that. They just shake it or they have you shake it and they, okay, stop. And so it really, you just need to watch and be there when they're making it in order to understand how it's done in order for the recipe to be passed down as she continues getting older, I mean, kimchi is backbreaking work. Mm. Um, You're squatting for like two and a half hours. Um, And so eventually, once you're too old, you can't do that kind of work anymore. Mm. Um, So there's a timeline there as well.
0: So one concept that comes up when you write about this is Aungjong. Can you tell me what that is?
1: Yeah, so Aungjong, and I heard this the first time when my mom was telling me about her immigration experiences. It just means contentment the wave of immigrants that came over around the same time my mom came over, like in the 60s and 70s. Um, My mom said that they weren't looking for anything lavish or, like, any riches or anything like that. All they wanted was just some security, just something that was good enough.
0: Do you think she feels that's a value that maybe you guys have lost in your generation?
1: She is a bit of a shopaholic, but I think for the most part... um, She's still Yeah, she doesn't like to go overboard with certain things. So, sometimes my brother will want to upgrade like a bus ticket or upgrade a plane ticket and she says, "No, that's unnecessary." You know, and he says, well, there'll be more leg room, like, and you get sick a lot on the planes or on long trips. She goes, no, it's fine. We don't need that. Like, I have my medicine if I get sick. Um, so, yeah, I think she does try to, for the most part, live like a modest life. So, yeah, I think that ideology has stuck with her.
0: What about with you and your brother? Did it? Are you guys too far gone?
1: I don't think so. The first paycheck I got when I worked, I bought some things that weren't on sale, and it felt like entirely like stepping into a new world, and I was just like, I have so many options, um but that only lasted for maybe two paychecks, and then I went back to sale shopping. Maybe for my brother, he does like to indulge a little bit. um yeah, I think for me too i I just like having the basics and not I think and not anything more than that. like I don't really like the feeling I guess of indulging too much.
0: And you said you eat Korean food every day. Now you're out and you're you're teaching mm-hmm. high school in Washington, D.C. You pack lunches or you go out to dinner.
1: I cook. You cook. Yeah. And like I said, my mom will pack me food. So I'll eat that for dinner. But for lunches, I don't pack Korean food. I stick to American food.
0: So that's still a thing. <laughs> yeah. Even when you're the teacher, not the kid in the cafeteria.
1: Yeah. I you're... don't want it to be stinky. I don't want weird looks. <laughs>
0: Man, when will you have, uh, I guess the culture's got to change or something? I mean, this is your classroom.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> even in the classroom, like the kids don't out really say it, but I can't help but think that they do treat me differently sometimes or they don't maybe show me, they don't show me a lot of respect at times maybe because I'm like a Korean American girl. But that I don't know, that could just be all my head. Um, But I remember giving up I remember giving an example because we were talking about um, like stereotypes and the idea of like double consciousness um, by W.E.B. Du Bois, where it's like you live in two Americas and you never really know how to reconcile both. Um, So it's just like constantly this inner conflict. And I remember this one student. I gave the examples like, you know, I like Korean food, but I would never bring that to school. And he was like, oh, Miss Choi, like, why not? You should definitely bring Korean food. No one will make fun of you. And in my head, I was like, if you were a teacher, you would be the one to make fun of me. (laughs) So there's definitely um, that going on, I think, for me still in the public sphere.
0: Yeah. What's your favorite dish at that table where your mom is recalling like her – number one Jones or their craving, like what mm-hmm. would that be for you?
1: Mm. I have a lot. Um I think the simplest thing though is rice. I just call it pupur samasal. It it just it's like rice porridge. You just put rice, cooked rice with water on the stove and you wait until almost all the water is gone. It becomes really thick. Um and then I like eating that with oiji, which is Korean pickle and then a fried egg or a steamed egg. So that's my favorite. And in high school, when I would get back late from like marching band, my mom would always have that ready on the table for me. So then I would just go upstairs and shower and come down and eat it late at night.
0: Like, this is part of your childhood. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the flavor you'll go back to. That's unusual, too, because that's also, like, that's some deep home cooking, right? That's not something you're really going to go into a restaurant and ask for, like, some porridge with some pickles and an egg.
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, I sometimes do pour because at Korean restaurants they give you that hot water and tea, so sometimes I do pour that over my rice, and my mom gets very embarrassed when I do that. <laughs> yeah. it's
0: just like that's supposed to be your guys' secret, right?
1: At home. Or you just you do that at home, not at a restaurant. <laughs> Uh, I think home cooking always beats out the rest, and sometimes what my mom will do is we'll go out to eat Korean food, um, but then she has to do this thing called eep kashim and eep in Korean is mouth, and Kashim is just washing it down. Just, she always says she needs to wash out her mouth, and she'll make her own Korean food at home, just to wash out the flavor of the old Korean food that we eat at the restaurant.
0: <laughs> just like a little like a little taste of something to, right. to just have that better home-cooking flavor. Right,
1: just like a piece of rice that was sitting out all day, wrapped like kimchi wrapped around it, and she'll just have a bite of that, and she'll feel better.
0: <laughs> About having had like a substandard Korean meal or just, She's, yeah.
1: Yeah, I guess it doesn't sit well in her stomach huh. sometimes when she goes out, even if it is Korean food. It's just the way they prepare it. It's not the same as home-cooked Korean food. It's
0: just commercial cooking. Huh? Right. That's amazing. I mean, you could say this about a lot of cultures, but food seems to be like really truly actually definitely centrally at the heart of like Korean identity because it's such a distinct food culture. Mm-hmm. Uh and I mean, I I if there is a Korean American who doesn't give a shit about food, I haven't met them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. <laughs> But for you, is Korean food a bedrock of what you would think of as, like, being Korean?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, And I think that's one of the only things that I can, like, proudly identify with and proudly um, show off to other people, The Korean food. That's the way I feel connected to my culture. That's, like, the way I feel connected to my mom, uh, my family members. Because everything else I do tend to question, just, like, the Confucius values and everything like that. But the food... I can definitely get down with.
0: Can I ask how your mom's doing now? How's her health?
1: She's doing well. She has regular checkups with a doctor. Um, and then she recently signed up for YMCA. And because it's so expensive, she's been going to like two classes a day sometimes just to get the <laughs> to most get out the of her money. Yes, exactly. She's also cut back a little bit on tenjang, like the soybean, fermented soybean. It's a lot of the fermented food, too, that causes stomach issues. Mm. And you're just letting this thing rot, and then you eat it. And you make it into paste for soups. You make it into sauces. But it's just it's rotten soybean paste.
0: I mean, when you say it that way, (laughs) it does not sound... Like what it is, which is intensely delicious food, mm-hmm. that God clearly had a plan <laughs> to like let these cabbages rot a little right. bit because it becomes like this incredible thing to eat, so yeah, it doesn't make sense why Why would yeah. something so good make you sick
1: exactly, and I was watching a long chi recipe with my friend, and she was making homemade soybean paste, which is like multi-year process. And she put a piece of charcoal in the jar and just let it sit there with the soybeans. So when I saw that, I was like, no, I feel like this is why it's bad for you. All those carcinogens and you're letting this thing just rot in that closed jar for more than a year and you use it for the base of all these sauces and soups. I had no idea that they put charcoal in it.
0: Just put like a few lit cigarettes and a handful <laughs> of soybeans and exactly. let it hang there for <laughs> For years, but again, going back like the soybean paste, mm-hmm. super delicious. Exactly, <laughs> makes soup like amazing. Right. So I'm going to say that our listeners are going to make such incredible powdered milk Korean cornbreads <laughs> that your mom is going to be re-inspired, and uh, you will get back on uh, on on Google and read more dissertations <laughs> and more food bloggers, and and finally nail that tooth-crunching, gritty, (laughs) rock-hard stone bread from her youth. That's my goal for this podcast. (laughs) Thank you for coming and talking with us uh, about your family and stone bread and all the rest.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: The Trip is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg, produced by Josie Holtzman and Future Projects. Our editor is Taffy Mokunyadzi. Our executive producers are me and Matt Goulding of Roads and Kingdoms. Special thanks to Dan the Automator for the music and Adele Rodriguez for the art. You can find Nicole's article, True Grit, about her search for cornbread on roadsandkingdoms.com. Next week, I'll be taking an epic journey back across the East River to Netflix's New York headquarters, where I'll be talking to Samin Nasrat, chef, author, and star of her own upcoming television series. We'll see you there. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Went. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio, Ruby Studio, and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.